Back to kick off episode 261 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Sand Dune. It's off the album Freshwater Freakout. It's from the band The Sturgeons. You can find them at thesturgeons.bandcamp.com. I'm emphasizing the word the because it's T-H-E-E and then sturgeons like the fish.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, the webpage for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show this week. I always mention at the top of the show that we are devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic. Well, this week we are devoted to a bona fide classic, hands down, one of the best, one of the most important, one of the most influential monster movies ever. I'm talking about 1932's. The Mummy, starring Boris Karloff. I mean, come on. It's The Mummy. And I'm not the only person who thinks it's important. I'm not the only person that this movie has influenced. It's also influenced this week's guest, author and monster kid, Stephen D. Sullivan. So in this episode, Steve and I sit down, we talk about The Mummy, we talk about the movie itself, the people behind the scenes, people who are in the film, and then we're going to talk a lot about how this movie has influenced us personally. He's a writer. I'm a writer. It's impacted our own storytelling interests and predilections and all this other stuff. Anyway, it's an incredibly fun conversation. I had a blast editing it. I hope you guys and gals have a blast listening to it. And just so everybody knows, we do spoil The Mummy. If you haven't seen The Mummy, hit pause. Go watch it. It's like, what, just a little over an hour and come back. I'll wait for you. Okay, you back? Excellent. Okay, so The Mummy. We're going to spoil The Mummy here in a second. But before we get to that, I have a little bit of feedback I want to go over real quick. Now, this is something that came in from Eduardo on Facebook. He was referring to last week's episode. Joshua Kennedy came by, and we talked about the movie The Gorgon. He says, fun listen. Just wanted to point out that Rasputin, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Plague of the Zombies, and The Reptile were all filmed back-to-back at Bray Studios. And The Mummy's Shroud was the final film to shoot at Bray in 1966. This is in reference to some comments that Joshua and I made back and forth regarding Bray Studios versus Elstree Studios when it came to the classic Hammer films. And we weren't 100% sure which film was the last film that was shot at Bray. So, Eduardo, thank you for sending this in and clarifying that. I should know better. Don't tell my co-host Scott and Casey over at 1951 Downplace that I flubbed on that because I might kind of corner off my Hammer Films geek card. But I guess if they do, I still have Eduardo to help keep me in check. So thank you so much for leaving that note on Facebook. Also, we had an email from Jason S. He says, hey, Derek, I sent him my Rondo ballot and voted for Vince Rotolo. I love the B-Movie cast. Been listening since the first year. And you know what? I'm just going to interject here. Jason, I love the B-Movie cast, too. What Jason's referring to here, ladies and gentlemen, is the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Film Awards. It's something that happens every year. Head over to RondoAward.com to learn all about it. It celebrates fandom, research, enthusiasm. Basically, if you are doing anything in the field of classic monster movies, and really some non-classics as well, there's some modern stuff in there as well, you're going to find it represented by this incredible ballot for the Rondo Awards this year. Monster Kid Radio won the Rondo Award for Best Multimedia last year. I'm on the ballot again this year. So thanks, everybody, who helped make that happen. And I've been pushing for Vince Rotolo to be inducted 
into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Now, this is one of the categories over at the Rondo Awards. You know, I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about the Rondo Awards at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. But Jason's email continues, well, about the Rondos. He says he nominated a bunch of Japanese Godzilla suit actors and special effects directors for induction into the Hall of Fame. We'd like to see these folks honored before they pass away. And you know what? That is such a good idea. I love that if you really look, you can find Monster Kid representation around the world. I mean, not just here in the States. Now, granted, Hollywood being here in the U.S., you see a lot of monster movies in the U.S., but we cannot forget about the Japanese influence, the Japanese contribution to Monster Kiddom with their kaiju films. You can't forget about the Mexican influence on Monster Kiddom with their Mexican monster movies, their luchador films, all those. It's just there's so much out there. I love it. And I would love to see some of these guys end up in the Hall of Fame. Jason continues saying that a couple of weeks ago, he went to a screening of Godzilla X Megagirius with the screenwriter, director, and special effects director in attendance. While I didn't understand most of the Q&A, it was great to see hardcore Japanese Godzilla fans. I get the feeling their appreciation is drastically different than that of most Western fans. Take care, Jason. And I think you're absolutely right, because I've seen the documentary Hail to the King, 60 Years of Destruction. It was directed by my friend and fellow podcaster Kyle Yount, the man behind the Kaiju cast. You can actually see Hail to the King, 60 Years of Destruction on YouTube. Tell you what, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. It is nominated for Best Documentary in the Rondo Awards this year. The documentary follows Kyle when he leaves Oregon and goes to Japan to talk to those fans of and some of the people involved with the Kaiju films. It's a really, really cool documentary. I highly recommend it. And it's definitely well-deserving of the Rondo nomination. So if you ever have anything that you want to share with us here on Monster Kid Radio, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or leave a note on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash monsterkidradio, or just look up the Monster Kid Radio group because there's some activity over there as well. I'll go over that information again at the end of the show also, at the end of the show, I'll talk briefly about my experiences last weekend here at the Northwest Film Center when I saw two classic horror films. And oh boy, that was awesome. That's all going to happen, though, after our conversation with Stephen D. Sullivan about The Mummy, talk a little bit about Dracula, and heck, we even talk about The Hardy Boys. That all happens right after this. <laughs> Nightmare terror from the tomb. An ancient curse comes to life to strangle the living and raise the dead. Here is the horror and the terror of a story that began in ancient Egypt. Take care, Obey! Take it! When Ka Bey, a son of Pharaoh, died in the desert and was covered in the shroud that bore the sacred power of life and death. What was he saying? He says that death awaits all who disturb the resting place of Kato Bay. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the curse of the mummy's shroud. This is the leader of the British expedition who came in search of the tomb. 
the rich and ruthless financier who believes money can bribe even the devil himself. This is the son who knows there is no escape. Someone or, or something is trying to destroy us. I believe it'll find us wherever we go. The wife and mother trapped by the mummy's shroud. Ah, I, I see death. This is Haiti, the crystal gazer, who sees into the past and the terrifying future. This is the girl who's doomed, cursed by the mummy's shroud. You mean I'm going to die? <laughs> In a few minutes from now. <laughs> A thousand years, now he lives and breathes to avenge an ancient curse, to strangle the living, praise the dead, and prey upon human flesh. Film productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Should I have said Hammer Pants? 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the cat people. Women whose kiss means death. Whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Twice I've been followed by something that was not human. Something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut now. Just a minute ago, it was open. Clock. Leave us, Irena. Hi, this is Sarah Karloff, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. 
eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. The mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. You know, I'm going through the mummy films with Nicholas Hatcher, and, and I've got to get him back on the show to do some more of the Lon Chaney mummy films, but there was a mummy movie that kicked off Universal's run in 1932, starring the amazing Boris Karloff, and I'm talking about it this week on Monster Kid Radio with the amazing Stephen D. <laughs> Sullivan. How you doing, sir? Great to be back again. Welcome back to MKR, man. It's been, I don't know how long has it been, not too long, right? Not too long. I mean, we did the, a couple of kaiju films mm-hmm. and... Was it Young Gary, the last oh, one we that's did? that's right, Young Gary. Yeah, with a really, really sad ending. Yeah. And that a double meaning, so. <laughs> Good point. Well, this one, I guess it's got a little bit of a down, I don't know. This one's a very satisfying ending for me, this film, The Mummy. Yeah, no, it's terrific. And, you know, when I wanted to have you on the show, we were talking the other day, and it's like, hey, I've got an opening, and you've got an opening, let's do this. We kind of went round and round trying to figure out a movie to cover that hasn't been covered before, hasn't been spoken for, whatever. I am so glad that we settled on this one, because it's been a while since I've watched it. Yeah, yeah me too. I, I'm very glad we settled on it, though I seem to see this film with, uh, I won't call it alarming regularity, because I really love the film, but I feel like when I watched it again last night, it was like, I just saw this. It might, maybe it was on Sven Gulli or something like that, but this is one of those films that I've, I've seen a lot, but it's probably because it's also one of those films, like a lot of the classic Universal films, that if it's on it will be on in my house. I will leave it on in the background while I'm doing other things. And I've seen it well more than a dozen times. I'm not even sure how many times I've seen it. So I know it I know it fairly well. And now having said that, watch me screw up something really basic about the plotter characters. <laughs> <laughs> and, anyway, it's it's very familiar to me and, and a great influence on me in, in a number of ways as well. You know, it is a, a super influential film, I feel like, uh, you know, on some of your work. For me, you know, for what I'm into and my interests, I love the Egyptian aesthetic, even though I'm sure it's not historically accurate. I love the way these Universal movies present Egyptology and the exploration, and it just, I love it. And I love the way right. it feels and it looks, and I can i can smell the sandy, I just, man, I just love it. And this one is not actually that bad in terms of its Egyptian mythos and stuff. I did see that there were things uh, complaining online that it's Hollywood Egypt and Hollywood archaeology and that kind of stuff, but... Yeah, it's Hollywood. What do you, what do you yeah, expect? I mean, you, you don't go At to... At least in this one, they know that Karnak is a temple and not a god. There you go. So it gets points from for me for that, which the rest of the Mummy series really got kind of jumbled up in their Egyptian mythology, where Karnak becomes a god rather than a temple complex and stuff like that. This one's a little more straightforward and actually has, you know, everything in it 
fairly well makes sense in terms of actual Egyptian mythology. That's one of the things that I like about this is that it has this feel of authenticity. Now, yeah. I love the other Mummy movies. I hope that's evident. I do too. But, I mean, those are serial adventures. And, yeah, it's cool to have a Mummy running around and doing all this other crazy mystical stuff. But there's an authenticity to this one. And I think, you know, some of that has to do with the screenplay. Uh, John L. Balderston was a, a journalist who covered. Right, yeah. And, and this is only like 10 years or so after they discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. Right. So all of that stuff is really fresh in people's mind and in, is in fresh in Balderson's mind as well. And so, you know, I mean, you get the trinket that looks like Isis, and you get the temple guardians, and you get references to Bast, and you get the scroll of Thoth, which is not a real thing, but in terms of the mythology, Thoth was one of the people that helped Isis bring Osiris back from the dead. And when I say people, I mean gods. Right. The mythology there is it's not too bad. And they seem to have some kind of understanding of the mythology and how things work. And it's better than probably nearly all of the other mummy films that have ever been made in that way. It seems to me more authentic in terms of the mythology and what's going on. I would agree. I mean, I think Balderson's involvement with covering the opening of King Tut's Tomb definitely influenced the story and the screenplay here. And I think it's the first feature-length mummy film. I'm not 100% clear on that. I think it might be. The whole others, uh... It's not the first mummy movie, because there's a lot of shorts and even some silent films. Right, yeah. There's a silent film that might be a feature-length one that I oh, cannot really? remember okay. the name of. You know, before the Universal Monster movies... Aside from Nosferatu and some of the German expressionist stuff, there really weren't monster movies per se as a thing. So when you see an older picture that says The Mummy's Foot or something like that, it may not be a horror film. The Mummy's Foot. That's an actual um, short story from around the time period. I love it. It seems kind of absurd to us now, you know, I mean, the mummy's hand, yeah, I get that, but the mummy's foot, why would you call a story the mummy's foot? But it's not like what we expect from a mummy movie. What we expect from a mummy movie now is entirely based on the Boris Karloff film and then the Lon Chaney films that, and Tom Tyler films that followed it. You know, that's what we think of as a mummy movie. So in the 20s, if it said it was the mummy's kiss, Maybe there was a mummy somewhere in it, but the mummy wasn't alive and walking around and looking for victims or his lost reincarnated love and that kind of stuff. Chances are it was just some kind of a prop that was in the movie that they thought was interesting for building some kind of a suspense thriller or something like that. You you can certainly see that as the mummy movies progress as well. I mean, I like the Lon Chaney movies and I like the Hammer films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. You know, you do kind of see that, I don't know, reshaping of the mythology as Hollywood continues, and, and the low-budgeters and the independents continue to make these mummy movies, which, right. you know, I still respond to. I mean, I'll still watch <laughs> you know, a low-budget mummy movie. and, and If it has a mummy in it, I'll, I'll watch right. it. I'll give it at least a, a shot. I, we talked before the, the cast that I'm watching Frankenstein versus the mummy right now, and I just, just started it, so I don't know how it's going to turn out. But it's got a mummy, and it's got a guy piecing people together from other body parts, which actually traditionally isn't what Frankenstein did. But again, that's that's Hollywood. I'm willing to give it a chance. I'm willing to take a look and see how it goes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, throw a mummy, I'll give it a shot. 
Why not? This one, right. though, I'm glad I gave a shot years ago when I first watched it. You remember the first time you saw this one? I did. It's, it's funny you should mention that. I was I was thinking about that back in the early 1970s and my, maybe even the late 60s. There was on WCVB Boston, which had just been a newly minted ABC affiliate, on Saturday night, they had a thing called Horror Classics. And they had gotten a hold of, somehow, the entire universal cycle of monster and suspense mystery movies. And they showed these two a night, every Saturday night, with very limited commercial interruptions and the quote-unquote horror host was a guy named Frank Avrush, who apparently played one of the Bozos during the Bozo franchise early days. You guys remember, some of you probably remember Bozo the Clown. It wasn't a syndicated show. It was like every place locally had their own Bozo. This guy was one of the Bozos, apparently. But for horror classics, he dressed in a tuxedo every week and kind of did this Robert Osborne-style introductions and in-between pieces to these movies. And every week, it was just like, this is the point you have to remember before even videotapes. So there were, there were no DVDs and Blu-rays. There were no videotapes. It was around the time that the revival movie houses really started taking off. And that, that was a glorious thing that allowed me to see things like this in the actual theater later. But the first time I saw it was on Horror Classics one Saturday night on WCVB in Boston. And... It was a wonderful thing. It was a revelation. It wasn't... Somehow, I think I may have seen some of the Karras Mummy movies previous to the Karloff one. And seeing this, it was not what I expected. And you probably remember when you you were a little monster kid, how (laughs) the monster was the thing, and you wanted to see the monster all the time. Which is why Godzilla movies are perfect for kids. It's like, Godzilla shows up, and then he's in the film for the entire film and you see him all the time or Ray Harryhausen films are there are monsters or creatures as Ray called them in the films almost from the start all the way through to the beginning now if you add up the little pieces they may not be more than 15 minutes of character animation during the whole thing but they're spread out so you always see them and then you come to a film like this where The famous mummy, the iconic mummy, the mummy that all other living mummies in film since have been based off of, is in the movie about less than three minutes at the start. Tops. And you don't actually even see him moving per se. It's all implied and all done with mood and atmosphere and that kind of stuff that Carl Freund really excelled at. And so as a kid, it was like, Where's the damn mummy? At least for a little while. But then you start to get the fact that Boris is so amazing in this film. In my opinion, this is one of his best roles. And it's two of Jack Pierce's best makeups in the fact that the mummy, the original mummy makeup, which they later kind of recreated for Tom Tyler and Lon Chaney Jr., is an amazing makeup. But then the the Ardeth Bay makeup, once he's revived as a human being and is no longer in the wrappings and stuff, that makeup just creeps me out to this day. It's an astonishing makeup. I was going to make that comment that, you know, the first time I saw this, I was younger and I had read all about these movies in those Crestwood House books. So I I knew Mm -hmm. what the mummy was supposed to look like. And then I saw the movie for the first time. I don't remember when, but I know I was younger and I was like, that's it? 
I, right. I, want, I want more mummy. Where, where's my mummy? I want more mummy. Yeah. I want more of the guy in the rapids. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's... Now, over the years, having watched this movie and learned about it and just really kind of, well, for lack of a better term, studied it, you see that it's got so much more going for it than just that amazing makeup. I mean, that makeup design, that mummy look, I like everything about it, but what I like specifically is there's one moment where his hand is reaching across uh, of the parchment, right. and there's a little dingly bit off one of his fingers. I love that so yeah, much. Yeah, and his hand is <laughs> skeletal and kind of yes. crusted with grave dirt or whatever and looks moldy and that kind of stuff, and you don't have even see mm -hmm. the whole mummy. All you see is his hand with that ring Yep. Creeping in from off camera with its kind of long and decrepit looking fingernails. Not like crazy claws or anything like that. It's a very subtle kind of makeup. And that hand just reaching out to take that parchment and the character that sees him reacting to that, it's far more effective in the end than it would have been if you'd actually seen all of Boris in the whole makeup just reaching across and taking it. it. It's one of those, you know, what later we would come to think of as kind of Val Luton moments. It's shot like a Val Luton thing, more implied and more in your mind than what's actually on screen. But the subtlety of the makeup and the creepiness of it, it creeps me out. And, you know, and that's, that's just the start of it. And the, the later makeup creeps me out, too. Every time I see it, I go, ooh. <laughs> right. No, it's good. I mean, Ardeth Bay as a character, and I, I know he's just Imhotep, whatever, but Ardeth Bay as a character, the design, the look of that guy, mm. I yeah. mean, everything from the way Karloff holds himself as Ardeth Bay for the way he talks to the makeup, the way they lit his eyes specifically in some scenes, it's just right. so good. I'm getting chills. Stop thinking about it, man. I, I, literally, I've got some goosebumps going right now. It's awesome. Right. No, and and I was having those last night when I was rewatching it too. I would, you know, every once in a while, I'd just stop and admire the work and go, "Ooh, thank God you never meet someone like that in real life," <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's just amazingly creepy, and it's creepy in the mind in the way that a lot of monster movies that we love are not creepy. You know, it's good to see the Frankenstein monster lumbering around or the creature from the Black Lagoon or even the later mummy pictures. But it doesn't have that existential dread and feeling of death that this film and these makeups do. It's just amazingly creepy. And the, the Ardeth Bay, for those of you who – you need to run out and see this film, okay? And I can't you, imagine people on, haven't. On Blu-ray, so you need to see it if you haven't. But the face of Karloff and his – his uh, hands and stuff that you see is Ardeth Bay. They're all, they're kind of withered and dried out and mummy-like, even though they remain human. And his face, the makeup on the face just astounds me every time I see it. There are so many wrinkles and so many just little subtle things going on that make him look, you can see he's human, but there's something really inhuman and dead about him at the same time. And you can see the characters in the film kind of are struggling with this. It's like, okay, we know this guy is important and we know we shouldn't offend him, but dang, there's something about him that is just creepy and otherworldly. You know, I dislike to be touched. 
he says. And and you're like, yeah, no one would want to touch this guy. <laughs> even, even if you didn't know he was 3,000 years old and, you know, his skin is dead skin and stuff. And you mentioned the spotlight on the eyes. You were just a, a couple of weeks ago, as we're recording this, you were talking to someone about Dracula and how they lit Bela's eyes and Dracula and then subsequently in White Zombie. But for me, this is the film where that reaches its pinnacle. Whatever pin spotlights or however they were doing it, they managed to get it just on Boris's eyes while the rest of his face remains in shadow, clearly visible. So you can see all the hideous makeup, but it looks in the film, and this is way pre-CGI, it looks as though his eyes are glowing out of the darkness and out of the depths of time. They reused kind of that shot a number of times in the film, and I don't blame him because it's sends shivers down my spine whenever I see it. It's like, yeah, that's the way you do it. That is the pinnacle of that particular effect. It has never mm-hmm. been done better. I agree with you. I think there's a lot of things actually in this film that are done better than what we saw in things like Dracula and Frankenstein. And, and it's only a year after these movies. But there's right. a, a level of sophistication to a lot of what's being done here. The eye effect, that, that light in the eyes, it's stellar. And it's so subtle and it's so well done. And I'm sure part of it has to do with Karloff's performance you know, around that. Yes. But it's so well done. There's a lot of dynamic camera work happening here, whereas you didn't have a lot of that, and especially in Dracula. They're moving the right. camera around. They're doing all these things. They're quick cutting back and forth. Right. And Freund was a brilliant cameraman. Right. You have to remember that. Freund is the director, Carl Freund. was a brilliant cameraman, and he was the cameraman on Dracula, and he was a cameraman on a a number of silent films that aren't springing to my mind, although Caligari might have been one of them. thought he did Metropolis, didn't he? Oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe he did Metropolis. But he worked in Germany on, on these silent classics, and then he came over here. And what people tend to forget, and they, they look at Dracula and some of the other films that were made in 29, 30, and 31, and they think how unsophisticated they are in terms of the camera work and the sound is not very good and all this kind of stuff. But you, what people tend to forget is the reason for that is because of the sound equipment. Right. Because the sound equipment was so primitive that they basically had to abandon all of this stuff that they learned in making films up until that point because suddenly you couldn't move the camera because then you were going to trip over the wires for the sound equipment or there's some other thing going on with the sound that is making you make choices that are not as interesting as you would have made just a couple of years earlier. It was a step back visually. It, it really was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if you look at Intolerance or you look at Metropolis mm-hmm. or any of the great silent films from like 1927 up until the end of the silent era, they were doing astonishing things with their cameras in terms of movement and in terms of cuts and wipes and all this kind of stuff. And once sound came in, so much of the energy of the picture had to go into getting the sound that a lot of that stuff just went right out of the window. But they got it back fairly quickly. So if you watch Dracula and you watch this, it's only a year later. And it seems like it's a huge jump in filmmaking. But in fact, it's a return to what they were doing before the sound equipment came in and screwed everything up. (laughs) Right. I mean, before... You, you had static cameras. You had static actors because they couldn't move that far away from microphones. You had to be so still and so careful. I feel like with right. The Mummy, we really do see this huge jump. Like you said, it's probably less than a year in terms of production. 
Right, yeah. It's it's amazing to see and to play back-to-back to some of these other movies. It really does make this one shine and stand out. Right. And we compare this one to Dracula because they're very, yeah. very similar films. I mean, they're written by the same guy. And the plots of them are very similar. And it's clear that they, you know, in these pre-DVD, pre-videotape days, pre-television, that if you had something that worked, you could then take the the pieces that you wanted to and repeat it a year later. And people weren't going to be able to play Dracula back-to-back with The Mummy and say, there's a story at the center of this that is kind of the same damn story. And in fact, you even have the same actors playing the same kind of parts. You know, I mean, we've got David Manners mm-hmm. is back as the uh, as the handsome love interest, and Edward Van Sloan as Doctor Van Helsing. I mean, Doctor Mueller. <laughs> <laughs> I love him in this, though. I really do. Oh, I, I think, do too. So he was in the big three. You know, Frankenstein, Dracula, and this. Yeah. And in Dracula and this, he does play similar type characters. There are even scenes that kind of mirror, no pun intended, the mirror scene in Dracula. In this film, where he is standing there across from Karloff, kind of explaining what he knows and what do you think will happen if we do this with this? You know, you could transpose that to the, I noticed something peculiar while you were standing in front of the mirror scene, you know? Right. But I love it. It works, and I love it. And I'm going to piss off Dracula fans worldwide and say, I think this film is better in every way, and that includes the Dr. Mueller part than the the Dracula really? film with Bill. Which is a great film, okay? Uh-huh. It's great, but I think it shows its age much more than this film does. Uh, partly because of the sound equipment and partly because it was entirely bound up after the initial scenes. When we're at Castle Dracula in Transylvania, that film is a great film. When we get to London, suddenly it becomes a stage play, essentially. And I think that really harms Dracula. And I think this film is better... For a film that is so similar, it was like, well, we're going to do it again, but we're going to fix the problems that we have had with it last time. So whereas Dracula seems kind of stage-bound, this film is like in a creepy, confined space, if you know what I mean. It's like then they had no choice. This time they had a choice. So when we've got Edward Van Sloan standing across from Karloff and saying something like, if I could, I would grab you and, and crush your cracked and brittle bones into dust or whatever he says. It's a great speech. I don't remember it exactly. And Karloff is standing there. He's like right next to him. You think, yeah, but I understand why you're not not doing that, even though you could reach out and attempt it right now. Whereas in Dracula, it always seems like they're standing there and one of them is waiting to exit stage right, stage left or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I love Dracula, but it does have a stagey I, I feel. And, and I, don't, I don't think you're saying you don't. Yeah, I love Dracula. And it is the most important film in the horror film genre because it's right. the one that set the stage for all the others. Set the stage, huh? Oh, I see what you did there. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, it's a flawed film in many ways. It's Maybe some of that is just what they went back in and and did when they cut out some of the stuff that actually ended up in the Spanish-language version of Dracula. I wish, if I could go back in time, that I could find the stuff that they cut out of the Lugosi Dracula that's kind of in the Spanish Dracula and restore and recut Dracula. In fact, there is a a fan recut of Dracula um, that you can find online. I don't remember the name of the guy, I'm sorry, off the top of my head, who did an excellent 
an invisible recut of Dracula where he just rearranged some of the scenes and then he added a couple of clips in from the Spanish Dracula. And it's actually a better movie in terms of movie making than the Dracula that we all know and love. So I wish the studio hadn't kind of messed around with it because clearly there had to be more material there. There had to be this stuff. The way they were shooting that, they were shooting Lugosi in the day and the Spanish version at night. And the Spanish version ended up with more stuff in it. <laughs> yeah, it's a longer film and the pacing is so different. Right. And it, it makes more sense in a lot of ways too than the American version. But anyway, so... The, the point with this is it's almost in a way like they remade Dracula, but with a mummy, and they overcame all the shortcomings. Whereas the Lugosi film, too much happens in a way for its its short run time, which is, you know, these are both about 70, 75-minute films. They're very short. But in the Lugosi film, it, it feels like things are missing and things kind of got jumbled. In this film, it seems to proceed really seamlessly for me from beginning to end, even though we know... And you can even see in the credits that they cut out scenes. There are scenes of reincarnation over the ages of the princess, and and I guess probably Imhotep wasn't, but maybe he was. They cut out all those scenes and uh, just because they thought it slowed the movie down. And I think they're right, because this movie is, it proceeds right from beginning to end. It's full of atmosphere and creepiness. It doesn't have the kind of monster-on-the-rampage shocks that we're used to later. But at the same time, again, it's like Luton, less is more, and less makes this, I think, a far creepier film than Dracula or than, than Frankenstein or than maybe any of the other universal classics. It's creepy. Wow. And Karloff is amazingly creepy. Well, of the 30s, I mean, I, I guess you don't really see another what, I don't know, they market as one of their classics until, what, 41 when The Wolfman came around? Yeah. I guess Bride's in there somewhere, and they sometimes roll her out as one of the classics, even though they don't really do her justice in the film. But no, I hear what you're saying there regarding kind of a, a Dracula 2.0. Right. Yeah, they do kind of upgrade it a little bit and, and try to, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but they do go through. And a lot of the story beats, the the setting is different, obviously, but the story beats, the, the plot overall, the theme, it does call back right. to Dracula quite a bit. Right, they it's the bones of the plot are all the same, but the overlay, the overlay of the Egyptian stuff and the reincarnation is very different. Right. On the surface, you have the undead creature coming back to life, coming to a modern city and preying upon women. And then the, the stalwart professor and the young, handsome guy trying to stop that. You've got the Isis symbol versus the cross and Dracula and that kind of stuff. So there's all those kind of surface things. But then you overlay on top of that the undying love that Imhotep has had for his princess for all these thousands of years. And it's interesting that later, that same kind of, you are my lost love in a new body, that got picked up later by Dark Shadows for the Barnabas character. You know, whether they were deliberately raiding the mummy or not, that became one of the central themes of for Barnabas in Dark Shadows. And then... After that, it made its way into Dan Curtis's Dracula, where Dracula was suddenly looking for his lost love, and in many, many of the subsequent Dracula pictures. So it's like, in a way, in the modern day, you've actually got the two films melded back together with the, the long-lost love story from The Mummy with the, 
Dracula portion from the Lugosi film. So these films resemble each other, and it's like over the years they've actually kind of merged back into one film, and the film they've merged back into is not a mummy film. It's Dracula. Right. You, you don't get the I have crossed oceans of time to find you in any of the mummy movies these days, which I'm fine with. Although actually it is in the – you know I started to watch it last night, and I just didn't have time to finish it. I started rewatching the Brendan Fraser mummy and the Imhotep and the princess – Love story is actually very prominent in oh, the Brendan Fraser Bumby movie, which I like a lot better than I know a lot of Monster Kids poo poo it, but I like it a lot. I think it's a lot of fun. I was surprised in some ways when I was watching it last night at how big it is. I didn't remember it being as quite as big. I know when I went to saw it in the theater, I was expecting Hammer. And I got kind of hammer mixed with Indiana Jones. Right. And I was okay with that. I thought that it worked fairly well. It does have that Indy Jones feel to it, which, you know, I mean, it's all right. Um, You know, for a big blockbuster Hollywood horror movie by the guy who directed Van Helsing, it's not awful. (laughs) You know, it's not bad. I mean, well, and and you were talking to um, the guy you were talking with about Dracula talked about Van Helsing has some cool stuff in it. It's kind of a hot mess of cool stuff. Yeah. Too much CGI, too many things. If they'd only quieted it down, all the pieces are kind of cool. Yep. But the mummy is like that, but le- far less of a hot mess. It's it's a lot more fun, and it does have that. I have been looking for you across all of time thing, right? Which is a, a very very compelling storyline, and that the credit for that goes to um, the woman who wrote the original story, Nina Wilcox Putnam, who is a, a novelist and. The screenplay for this was originally called Cagliostro, and it was about someone who was 3,000 years old looking for his lost love, apparently. And at some point they got, I don't know if it was uh, Richard Scher or uh, John Balderston that came in and then turned it into The Mummy. But, but that that part of it, that idea, is really, really strong. And in some ways, it makes The Mummy a sympathetic character in the way that Dracula... And the Frankenstein monster are not, although I guess the the monster is kind of in a world he never made. But part of you can kind of identify with Ardath Bay and Hotep. Sure. Because he's given up everything for this woman he loves. That's a powerful story. It, it is, and it's not born out of an quote-unquote evil place. Right. You know, I mean – Dracula, yeah, you know, he's a vampire bat, he's the devil, whatever. But with the mummy, it's all out of love. It's all out of devotion to this woman, whether you're watching this movie or the Hammer film with Christopher Lee and his devotion to uh, his princess, you know, the breaking of the taboo for the sake of love. It's so deeply resonating, I feel like, with a lot of folks. And I think you kind of miss that with some of the later films. Yes, But with this one, you definitely can see that, and it does make this story much more deep. And like you said, sympathetic. You feel kind of bad for Ardeth Bay. Yeah, he's killing people. And, right. you know, that's a bad thing. You don't want to do that. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, it's not born out of a place of evil. He's just so single-mindedly focused on his love. Right. Yeah, he just wants to get the girl back, yeah. the girl that he lost through no fault of his own 3,000 years ago. And it's not even now, really against her will. To, I mean, he's willing to do horrible things mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, he is. You know, he's he's got dedication. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
you know, when he's sitting her down, it's like, you know, I want to, sh- I want to tell you a story, you know, <laughs> basically. And then there's the silent film sequence of the film where we are learning about the history and all of that. She starts to, and that's a great oh, sequence. It's fantastic. And she buys into it. And it's not a, you know, you see in some of the later movies, they have to strap them down and make them realize this is what's going to happen. He's convincing her. And yeah, it's a little creepy, but it's still, she's on board. She starts to get right, it. Yeah, no, it's like he, he lures her in mm-hmm. and he shows her the truth. It's not like he's trying to hypnotize her. In some sense, she's under his thrall, and you see that, and you get that that sense where they they later say she has to go to him or she's just going to waste away and die. But in another sense, it's like, here's what I've gone through for you. This is all true. It's not like he's lying to her. It's not like he's promising her things that he's not willing to deliver on. And the silent sequence with... When you say silent, it has Karloff narrating over the top of it. But the sequence in ancient Egypt where she dies and then he tries to bring her back to life and he is caught and punished horribly for his love and devotion to her, that's an amazingly powerful sequence. And it it's so good that they shamelessly ripped it off and used the actual footage in The Mummy's Hand and then a lot of the subsequent Mummy movies. They would mind that sequence for stock footage quite a bit. Right, yeah, and mercilessly. But seeing it here, it's like, oh, this is you kind of forget. Having seen it in the other films, you forget how strong and how powerful it is in the original film. It's beautifully shot. It really feels like, to me, every time I see it, I really totally buy into the fact that I am looking back in time. And seeing this in ancient Egypt. I mean, in some sense, you could say, yes, but everyone is white. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Egyptians weren't exactly white. They were, you know, in terms of just pure color, they were not exactly white people, but they're not black people either, most of them. So you can say that, but in terms of convincing within its own frame of reference, I find it totally convincing every time I see it. And, you know, up to the point where they bury him secretly and then they kill everyone that buried him. Every time I see that scene and you see those people with the spears sticking through them, it's like, Oh man, that's just, (laughs) again, you know, I've used this word a lot when talking about this film. It's very powerful, very powerful sequence. It's very powerful. It's visually stunning the way they do it. And I called it a silent film sequence because that's kind of how they shot it. They wanted to speed up the camera a little bit, the really white face powder makeup, that sort of thing. But it does have the Karloff narration, like you said, but it's still such a, a wonderful scene. And Hammer would do the same thing. You know, they would do their, right. Their, their flashbacks and then they would mind the heck out of that for future mummy movies as well. So, I mean, if it works, (laughs) don't fix it. Right. Uh, And in some ways I do love the hammer mummy, but, the fact that this one is in black and white, I think, makes it creepier. And again, in some ways, more powerful because there's, I don't know, there's something about seeing it that really feels to me like looking into the past more than the hammer sequence where everything is color. I would agree with and you there, too. Is, is modern. And, and that is not to say that if, if they do this again and they're talking about doing another mummy movie, to, again, reboot the Universal Monster Superhero franchise, which uh, I still remain very skeptical about. I don't want them going in and color grading the past in order to make it <laughs> in order to make it look old. If you're going to do something tricky with the camera, 
do it in the camera, please, because honestly, I'm sick of films that have been color graded to pieces. You know, it's everything is blue now, everything is green now, everything is dusty and brown now. <laughs> too much. I understand color correction. You want to be able to color correct scenes, but you don't need to take a paintbrush and run over every frame of film. True. So that's my plea for practical effects in the universal monster things, as opposed to, uh, as you mentioned in the Dracula review that you just did, as opposed to the giant fist of CGI bats. (laughs) So you did get like the giant sandstorm in the mummy in 99. So, I mean, you have that. So, you did, and there is some CGI, and as I was watching it last night, one of the things I noticed at the start of the film, and I probably watched the first half hour or 40 minutes of the Brendan Fraser mummy, is that the, the CGI looks really dated now. It was kind of cool when it came out, but now you look at it and you're like, oh, that's CGI. Where is the special effects, the practical effects of the Karloff movie? They don't look dated at all. Those are classical in-camera sets and effects. And, you know, uh, we've got the mist in the pool and the and the overprint going on and that kind of classical film techniques. And it looks as good today as it did in 1932, as it did in 1972 when I first saw it, as it does right now. Whereas the CGI stuff in The Fraser Mummy, not not quite so convincing anymore. Oh, wait till you rewatch Mummy 2, The Scorpion King. That CGI is awful and did not hold up at all with The Rock. I did not like that film when it came out. I was one of, I know it was a huge blockbuster and I was one of the only people that was like, this is not nearly as good as the first one. It's just like a rerun with more money thrown at the CGI. And that became kind of a, a problem for that director, I think, going forward. Even to this day, the third Mummy film with Jet Li and Michelle Yeoh in it is actually much better than the second one, in my opinion, Yeah, of the modern ones. So, Well, if you didn't have that I, Mummy 2, though, you wouldn't have like four or five straight-to-video Scorpion King sequels. Come on. <laughs> I actually <laughs> like the one, and I, I don't remember if it was released in the theater or not, the one that's got The Rock in it, again, as the Scorpion King. I actually like that that film, <laughs> but it's also got Kelly Who in it, and I'm... I'm a big fan of Kelly Who. So anyhow. Anyway. The practical effects. Well, and the black and white. Yeah, I want to go back to what you were saying about how this is creepier in black and white. And I think it has to yeah. go back to what you were saying earlier. It's it's pre Luton. It's got so much great shadow work and the way the camera moves in the darkness and captures the light. And it's just, you know, the hand of a master right. working on I, this. And it's because of the director, you know, Carl Freund, you know, cinematographer. He was a genius cameraman mm-hmm. cinematographer, and I, I'm not saying that lightly. I mean, he was a genius at that. It shows in pretty much every frame of this film. Yep. This is filmmaking in black and white as high art, and it's amazing. Nominated for three Oscars over his career, won one for The Good Earth. I mean, the guy knew what he was doing when it came to the camera, and it shows so much. Now, from what I understand, though, uh, Zita Johan didn't really – like him. Uh, yeah. They didn't get along very well. This was his first right. big feature who film. plays yeah. Helen Groves, Grovesner and Anxan Amon. Um, and that, that's another thing. I, since we mentioned the princess's name now, I do want to mention that along with the authenticity of the the apparent authenticity of the mythology, the actual character names are 
much more real Egyptian than they later became in any of this series. You can actually take Ansin Amun apart. You can parse it out into Egyptian Egyptian words. I don't remember what it means, but Ankh is the, the Ankh of life, and Amun is the, the god Amun. So uh, I don't remember. It's like beloved of Amun or something like that, probably. But there is that, again, that little kernel within that that makes sense that then became lost when the the mummy became Karus and the princess became Ananka. Although maybe Anank, at least there's Anank in there somewhere. But in this movie, the names are all relatively straightforward Egyptian names, and 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 that again helps the authenticity of it. Even for me, in the you know in the 21st century here, looking back as someone that loves mythology and and worked on Dungeons and Dragons and all the which meant. You sucked in pieces from every mythology you were playing, yeah. designing, and running a game. There's little things like that that you can find that are just awesome. But as you say, Zeta Johan was not very fond of Freund as a director, and he was kind of mean to her. And from what we know, he was maybe concerned that he wasn't really a director in some ways. He was more of a, a cameraman cinematographer. And apparently decided to kind of take that out of her, <laughs> at least in this, trying to kind of scapegoat her. And she seems to have been a real character as well. I'd like to know more about her. I know she didn't do a lot film-wise. I know she did more stage work as well. But film-wise, she only did a handful of movies, and she seemed to at least think she wielded a lot of power in Hollywood. She had story approval in her contracts and would call right. up studio execs and say, why do these movies stink? If I remember right, she was making quite a lot of money then. I mean, yeah. she was like... I think it was like $7,500 a week or something like that. And if you can hardly even imagine how much money that was in 1932. It was probably more than enough money to buy a house every week sure. by comparison. So, uh, you know, and I don't know what Boris was being paid at the time, but I'm sure he was, he was uh, being fairly well compensated as well. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, a year and, after Frankenstein, I'm sure. Every oh, yeah. Has, and there's some, if you have the Blu-ray or you have the DVD set, there are some really nice making of The Mummy with lots of tidbits that I'm sure Derek and I are both drawing on from here in terms of what what we're telling you about the cast and crew and the making of the picture. It's really good that Universal has done that, although I kind of wish that they had done more updating for the Blu-ray because it's kind of the stuff that they did a couple of years back. But on the other hand, it's really good stuff, so I'm glad that they've still included it in the new editions. It always ticks me off when someone will bring out a new edition and they'll have dropped some of the old cool documentaries and that kind of stuff from it. Universal hasn't hasn't done that. They've kept the things on their discs, which yeah. is great. I mean, I've bought this movie on disc and Blu-ray, I don't know, four or five times Because <laughs> they keep putting them out. It's like, oh, I, I right. need to have this one. Oh, it's on Blu-ray? i got to buy the blue. But I, right, I, yeah, I would like to see another documentary, though. I'd like to see this. Then I have the collector's edition where it has all the other mummy films, and now I have the Blu-ray too. And if they bring it out with all the other mummy films on blue, I'll get it again. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think this is the one franchise, or the one studio that I, I don't grumble double dipping for, as long as they keep improving. Right. You know, if it's yeah. if it's just well, another that, five minutes the, of footage, I don't know. But if they keep improving it and giving me more, you know, I'll, I'll keep buying it. You hear me, Universal? Right. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if this is if any of these are streaming or not. The the Blu-ray or even the DVD of this, they're beautiful. Really, really wonderfully done. Universal has 
taken great care to make these the presentation on these look really, really good. Mm-hmm. They, they've done a really so, good job of these. I just wish they would tackle some of the others. <laughs> no, no, no. I I really yeah. would like to see the entire Universal cycle on Blu-ray. But on the other hand, if you've got a DVD player with an upconverter and you don't have a screen the size of your wall, the existing ones are really good. But mm-hmm. I'm always hoping for for better. There was a rumor Although it's going to be a long time before I upgrade to a 4K TV. Yeah, I'm good. Can, I'm good there for yeah, a while. <laughs> I'm fine with with Blu-ray HD. I don't need until I get a screen the size of my wall. <laughs> and even then, I don't see. Need 4K. When I saw Dracula in the mo- in the drive-in theater, not this last year, but the year before, I was going, "All right, I'm going to see it uh, a 35 millimeter print again. I haven't seen it for ages." But they were actually just playing it for the Blu-ray, and it, at the size of a drive-in movie theater screen, it still looked pretty damn good to me. How much more do we need? I don't know. Well, I was going to say the kinds of movies that I watch more often than not, anyway. <laughs> They don't really benefit from being blown up that big. In fact, in some cases, it probably makes them a little bit worse because they're not. Yeah. Some of these upgrades aren't nearly as forgiving. I, I'm reminded of the wires holding up the flying saucers in the world of the worlds. I know. Yeah, I know. You and I have, I think, talked about that many times before, and it's it's a damn shame thing about that particular one, which is a brilliant film, and I think even won an Oscar for special effects at the time. Is in the original film stock. And I don't know, have you ever seen it actually from 35 millimeter? No, but I would love to. I have. It's awesome. And you can't see the wires because the people that were making it understood the film stock they were using at the time and understood the projection system they were using and understood the actual makeup material that the screens were made of. And they shot it in such a way that between those three factors, between the film, the projection, and the screen – you couldn't see the wires because of the reflectivity and whatever other factors there were. But when you go in and you digitally scan that, all of that stuff shows up. And while I am vehemently opposed to redoing pieces of films, ancient films with modern stuff, I don't think we ever need to have more stuff inserted into Star Wars, for instance, and that kind of thing. I am in favor of going back and preserving the intent of War of the Worlds and other films like that by taking out the wires and then presenting it both ways on the disc. Sure. That, that I would like to see. Because I, I've seen it in the theater. I've seen it from 35 millimeter, And seeing it, I was just as puzzled by how they did it as a, a teenager and a young adult as I was when I first saw it on TV back in the, the low-def TV days where you in no way could see any of that stuff going on. It was amazing on the big screen, and to watch it nowadays, and it's one of my favorite films, War of the Worlds, which is why I'm so passionate about this. The war, original War of the Worlds, the George Pal version, is one of my favorite films. And to see it and to be able to see the wires is just, it's so disappointing, and it's such a disservice to the people that crafted it in such a way that you wouldn't be able to see the wires in the theater. I agree. I mean, there's something uh, to be said for that. And I agree. I don't need any more special editions of whatever. But, yeah, you know, going in and cleaning things up a little bit, you know, a little bit of restoration, fine. Go for right. it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard because, you know, then then you get to the thing like there's um, on the Frankenstein in the Blu-ray edition, they actually tried to correct a bad film splice 
to kind of very controversial effect. It's like when Frankenstein is staggering through the woods, maybe it's in Bride, and there's like a shot that they didn't match up the shot correctly, and or maybe there was a scene in between so you wouldn't notice, but there's like a, a tree there, and then there's not a tree there, and the angle is slightly different. And in the original film that we've seen for years, it's just kind of a, a weird kind of little jump. It's like the camera just suddenly shifts in one direction and there's a tree branch there that wasn't there a moment ago. And they tried to fix that on the Blu-ray and the film community remains really divided about whether they should have even bothered trying, you know? So it it is a fine line, but if you're going to go in and take out wires that were not intended to be seen and were not seen on the big screen, whether it's with War of the Worlds or it's a, a Godzilla film or whatever, I'm I'm kind of sympathetic to that, as opposed to reworking, re-editing, cleaning up the special effects, putting in uh, Hayden Christensen, where formerly there was an older <laughs> and more distinguished actor. Well, we won't even talk about what they did to the Devil Rides Out Blu-ray over in the UK, so we won't talk about how they redid the right, entire yeah, Death even, Riding In I'm sequence. I'm not even sure I've seen that, and but it's like, okay, I understand if you ran out of money and you'd like to fix it, in a way, at some point, these things become icons of their era, and they should remain as icons of their era. It's like going back and trying to touch up Tutankhamun's mask because they colored out of the lines on his beard a little bit or something like that. You know, let's not do that. <laughs> let's not do that. I have a another friend who's who I've worked with who's a writer, and... He is constantly wanting to go back into his books and fix things in the books. Just, you know, a line here, a line there, something I could have, he could have done better from the time. But my thought is, no, just let it be what it was when you did it. Outright errors, yes, fixed. You know, if, if you misspelled something, fix that, fine. But don't go in and, and rewrite the sentences, even if there's something there that bugs you now. Because now it's, it's yours, yes, but it's also part of history. Right. And let be that let it be that part of history. It's a snapshot, you know, of the time, the time it came out, what was influencing the author at the time. When they re released some of the Hardy Boys stories and gave them yes. cell phones and things like that. It's like that I mean I, right, I get right. the intent. Right. But Yeah, and there and in some sense it's easy to understand when things change a lot in the culture because in the the original Hardy Boys book was written in I think nineteen twenty seven. So a very, very long time ago, Franklin Dixon has been writing Hardy Boys books an awful long time. You'd think he'd be dead by now. You think? <laughs> but the, in the first one, there's there are which I've read, there are a number of what are now politically very incorrect phrases and things that are said that are, frankly, in, in modern day. And even back then, they were racist, but obviously they weren't perceived as racist. They were perceived as, yeah, if you say this and this – Everyone is going to be just okay with that. And you look at it nowadays and you cringe. So I can understand kind of wanting to take those out. And I know that they actually took the old original Hardy Boys titles and they actually rewrote the entire books in a lot of them. So I understand the the urge to do that. But at the same time, I'm really glad that they do have an original unexpurgated version available to collectors and other people that are interested in it. And Again, as as an author, at some point you got to move on. At some point you got to got to go for the next thing. You have to, you know, one of the reasons uh, we'll probably talk about 
what I've been working on at some point in this. And right now I'm doing Canoe Cops versus the Mummy, and I'm working on a a scary version of Manos and stuff. But there's a project I keep talking about wanting to do, and that's called Frost Harrow, that I've been working on for about 20 years. And the problem was and is... When I wrote it 20 years ago, my plan was that this would be the thing I would write for years and years and years and years. When I wrote it 20 years ago, I wrote five or six books, depending upon whether one you divide one in half because it got really long. And I was doing the best I could at the time, and they were set in the modern day. And when it came to the point where I actually had a career as an author, I wanted to pick them up again. But when I looked back, looked at them, I was like, ah, I could do better than this now. And all the technology is 20 years out of date. If I want to do it, I need to kind of update everything. And I've totally gotten stuck in that in that position where it's like, I don't like the old ones well enough to re-release them quite, but I don't want to let it go. And I, I need to, you know, either do massive rewrites or something. And And you can actually get paralyzed by being caught between the historical thing you did and wanting to bring it up to date and that kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons I've moved on to other things, even though I'm still wanting to get back and finish that story, which was, you know, at the time it was going to bring out a, a book every month. It was going to be Goosebumps for Grown Ups or, you know, Dark Shadows and Stephen King in a, a short monthly format. And I was going to have a book every month for at least 36 months. Wow. So if you can imagine the kind of planning... <laughs> that went into that you can see that it's something you'd be reluctant to let go but at the same time part of me is now getting to the point where it's like if i want to continue it i maybe i should just release the original ones again say hey these are from 20 years ago when i wasn't as good a writer and then if i want to you know if the plan is to continue just move on so i can i can see how it's it's easy to get caught up in wanting to fix your old stuff but i think most of the time it's mistake and maybe I should take my own advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I woke up this morning, I didn't think we were going to talk about the Hardy Boys, but um, <laughs> right, yeah, no. God love the Hardy Boys. I'm I'm a big fan. Yeah, I grew them, up so. reading them. I grew up reading them, so, especially yeah, the spooky I, titled ones. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and and uh, more recently, they did some that were you know about uh, collecting magic cards and and running in motocross races and other kind of things that are uh, really? that are kind of of interest to me. So I may huh. have uh, I may have seen a few of them. Huh. <laughs> They're still being written by Franklin W. Dixon, though I guarantee it. Wow! From 1927 to today, he is the oldest writer in the universe. <laughs> there are no ghost writers working on his stuff. <laughs> Maybe he's taking like some Tannis leaf tea or something. You right? Know, just yeah. To keep it yeah. Going. He's bringing it all back to. I'm trying. To the mummy. <laughs> and well, and in some ways, you know, we were talking about kind of political correctness and, sure. and the Hardy Boys and wanting to rewrite things. And there are parts of the mummy that are not, they're not horrible, I don't think, but there are, you know, the black person in the thing is a, is a servant who becomes kind of a slave to the mummy. And that's not entirely politically correct. And it's worth noting that the, the guy that plays the Nubian in the film is the the great noble johnson mm-hmm. who would do a lot who was in many many films and it's interesting he was a, an african american and was often sometimes cast as black characters but sometimes cast as the the cossack or some other 
you know, non-white guy in a film. So he ended up playing a lot of kind of interesting roles. And he was also, if I remember right, he was had his own film studio, I think, at one point for, you know, uh, what they called back then race pictures. Right. They, yeah, he and his brother put that together. Was that the Lincoln Film yeah, Company? Uh, Lincoln Motion Picture Company. There you go. Yep. Yeah, and and is a, a terrific actor, and he's, he's fun to see in, in pretty much everything. And he's a guy that did a lot of work and obviously knew how to work within the system, even though it was kind of a racist system at the time. Well, kind of. Everything in this country was racist back then, practically. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, got a lot of work, did a lot of work, and did his own work as well, too. Noble Johnson, perhaps best known as the native chieftain in King Kong and Son of Kong. Yeah. But he's in this, and he's in Murders of the Rue Morgue, too, if I remember, he, and just all, all sorts of interesting uh, stuff. The Ghost Breakers, I, I know he's in. Oh, yeah, yeah right. He's in that. Yep, yep yeah, so he's, he's a really interesting character and has a minor part in this, in this film. As the Nubian. Um, as the Nubian. <sighs> to getting back to Karloff yeah. and how creepy he is in this film, Honestly, in many ways, and again, I love Bela and I, I love Dracula. I think that Ardeth Bay Imhotep is a much creepier character than these others. For one thing, he's got this pool that he can spy on you from across great distances with, <laughs> and he can kill you by looking into the pool and chanting ancient chants and kind of twisting up his fist and causing you to have a heart attack or something like that. It's not entirely clear exactly what he's doing to these people, but people are dropping like flies <laughs> in a way that Bela Lugosi could not quite accomplish in Dracula. No, he does take out Sir Wemple from a distance. And nearly gets David Manners. Yeah. He comes within a heartbeat of getting David Manners that way, too. And whenever he's around, it's clear that he's got some kind of mojo going on that People kind of can't can't get near him, leading to that scene with Edward Van Sloan saying to his face, I would crush your crumbling bones or whatever it is. And part of me is thinking, he's standing right there. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it, man. <laughs> do it, man. Reach out and, and touch him. And then at the same time, you think, okay, I can see that maybe doing that would get you killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that something about him is, is saying that he's, he's going to put the whammy on you and you are going to be a dead man. <laughs> if you actually try to carry through on that foolish notion. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful thing. The, the sense of magic, the sense of uh, reincarnation here is very interesting and very cool. And the the fact that uh, Zito Johan and Helen Grosner and the princess is clearly caught between the two worlds, caught between who she was and who she is now. And kind of flips back and forth. It's interesting to note that Cedar Johans was apparently actually believed in re reincarnation. So this was kind of a perfect role for her. She was kind of a, as we mentioned before, seems to be kind of, have been kind of an out there person who spoke her mind and, and spoke truth to power and mm -hmm. stuff. And Good basically could have, yeah, no, absolutely. She had uh, a lot of uh, personal agency back in the, in the days when not a lot of women did. And it's, it's wonderful to see her in this role. I wish we'd gotten to see her in more stuff and uh, found out a little more above her. But apparently she lived a, a long and full and happy life. Unlike a lot of people, there were a lot of, it seems like there are a lot of people to me in these old horror films that were young stars that went on to a terrible fate. Yeah. And happily, 
happily she's not one. <laughs> yeah, well, even even some of the big names. I mean, Lugosi's lack of career at Universal. You know, just right. Yeah, you know, no, terrible. Um, I love I love Bela. Sure, but if I'm going to pick one, I'm going to pick Boris. And the reason is Boris did more good films than Bela did. Bela's always amusing to watch, but it's it's so clear that his career had trouble almost from the get-go. We, you know, he was Dracula, he was huge, he was on top of the world, and then very quickly things kind of went wrong for him and he slipped from A Pictures to B Pictures to Poverty Row very quickly, even though he's good. He's good in all of it, and most of the stuff that he's in is worth seeing only because he's in it after a certain point. I mean, not you know, not talking about his great films like like White Zombie or um, Murders in the Rue Morgue or the stuff he did with Karloff. There's the other role that I think is as creepy as the Mummy in some ways is Karloff in the Black Cat. Oh my God, his, his character, and I actually think that may be the best movie that both of those guys are in together. It's fantastic. That film shows both of their range. Yep, and it's just amazing. Uh, and and Bela as a hero versus Karloff as a villain is just it's better than the Raven, which I think is a very good. It's film. a good one too, but, but um, yeah, no, the Black Cat. You know, I mentioned to Sarah Karloff when I met her that that was my favorite, one of my favorite Karloff films, and she's like, "Oh, you like seeing my dad get skinned alive, do you?" I was like, "Well, <laughs> no, that's not it. It's just <laughs> yes, but he totally deserves it." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's that Pulzig is his character name, I think, in that film. He's that is a creepy character in a creepy, creepy film. Uh, other than that, this is way up near the top of the creep factor. And you have to, again, you have to realize that it, at this point, it's a a film that's what eighty years old or something like that. Now, you have to be willing to immerse yourself in the time period it was made in, and not. I know, I know, I keep running into people that say I don't watch, or they know people who don't watch black and white films, and it's like, oh, you're missing so much. And this is one of those treats that if you're not watching black and white films, how are you ever going to see this film? You know, I went through a stage growing up where I thought black and white movies were dumb, and <laughs> I was a dumb kid, man. I, you know, we talk a lot about, if I had a time machine, I'd do this, I'd do that. And yeah, you know, I'd go back and watch some of these movies in the original screening, whatever. But I'd yeah. go back and shake that little Derek around and be like, you idiot. Don't <laughs> you get this? Stop teasing your mom about watching TCM. You're going to do it in 20 years yourself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think it may have helped that when, you know, when I was a little kid back in the 60s, there basically were no color TVs. You had to be insanely rich to have a color TV up until 1970-ish or just before. So most of us grew up watching TV in black and white, and so the transition from black and white TV to black and white movies was not not a big thing. Or as my wife said, my wife, um, actually, I think her family did not have a color TV until around 1980. Wow. Um, because they, did, you know, they were into music and books and that kind of stuff, and they just didn't. And the first time she saw The Wizard of Oz... <laughs> On color TV was like, oh my god, <laughs> this is in color. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Wow. Which uh, you know is is the way you kind of feel when you see it in the theater too. It's just like, wow, that's just kind of an amazing transition. So, anyway, yeah, happily because I grew up in the black and white era, I didn't have that, and I but I can I can totally see it. Look at all you're missing. 
or as I saw someone with a a meme on Facebook uh, with that was from Lauren Bacall supposedly, and I haven't looked this up to be sure, but it it said, "If you haven't seen it, it's a new film." <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a good point, and and right. I love discovering these new to me films, especially these older black and white movies. I, yeah. you know, I, I'm not kidding. I do spend a lot of time just going through TCM's you know, guide for the week. What's playing uh-huh. this week? Okay, I've got to set the DVR to record this, 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 and this. And yeah. and I still have stuff on my DVR from last year that I haven't followed up on yet. <laughs> but, you know, I love yeah, it now so much. That, that DVR failed, so suddenly I lost. <laughs> I know, I know. Mine started having some issues, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to lose everything. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, it's time to get that stuff off the DVR and onto I have a, a DVD recorder. There you go. It allows take stuff off of TCM and stick it in my library, which is why I probably have more than 5,000 <laughs> movies in my library. And I mean that literally. Yeah. It's, it's almost assuredly more than 5,000. Anyway, other things we love about this film. The production design beautiful, is brilliant. Beautiful. They had amazing people that came in and actually based a lot of their work on ancient Egyptian uh, paintings and that kind of stuff. It's, it's lovely. The We talked about the makeup we talked about the cinematography. The sound design is good. Again, this is uh, one of those films that doesn't have a lot of music in it. It has more than Dracula and Frankenstein, but you're right. It doesn't have a lot. No, it's got kind of a very memorable theme that I, I meant to haul out uh, my phone and, and see if it could tell me where the kind of Egyptian theme that runs through it a couple of times came from. But I, I just didn't have time to do it. And, and again, it has Swan Lake, which we all love. I can't hear Swan Lake without thinking of classic horror films. Right, that's what I was telling Justin McCumber when I had him on about Dracula. I can't hear that movie without thinking about either this or Dracula. Or that music, excuse right, me. I yeah. can't hear without hearing about it. Yeah, it's just, it's part of that. And I know that's not what Swan Lake was written for, but I don't care. Right. <laughs> when that plays, you look for vampires Swan and mummies. Lake appears in this and it appears in Dracula. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, does it appear in The Raven too, I think? Maybe? It might. But there it's actually, they're attending it or something like that. Sure. And and is it in, I don't remember if it's actually in White Zombie or if it's just in my promo for my book of White Zombie. <laughs> I don't know if it, But it's yeah. appropriate. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Sure. Um, but this is a film that's just end-to-end really interesting. It, it does have those echoes of Dracula, and it has some... Um, it's interesting in that – do we want to talk about the ending? You know, I, I think most people will have seen – you know what? Yeah, we're going to talk about the ending, but fair warning, listeners, spoilers. One of the things I, I think is fascinating about this film is that the heroes actually don't stop the mummy in this film. <laughs> right. Which I think is kind of wonderful in a way because it's like David Manners and Dr. Van Helsing – I'm sorry. I mean Dr. Mueller are chasing the mummy around. The mummy has basically laid them out completely you know he's done his will throughout this people that he wants to live live people that he wants to die die he almost kills david manners who is only vaguely rescued by having the uh, isis icon that he he has on him that uh, he foolishly was not wearing when the mummy decided he was going to crush his heart <laughs> exactly by a long distance here wear this well, and, okay. it comes down to zeta as helen and Imhotep, and I suppose we should mention that Imhotep was an actual real person that they stole the name from. Right. And considered to be the original engineer. He was the guy that designed the first pyramid. 
So that tells you how important he was in the world and is also considered to be perhaps the father of medicine. And this guy must have been just an amazing character in real life. But they stole his name, and it's, and it's uh, again, at least it's an actual Egyptian name. Anyway, I, I've forgotten where I was going with that. <laughs> Imhotep and uh, Helen Grosner are in the museum, and he is revealed the full extent of his hideous plan for her, which is basically that he's going to destroy her old body and kill her current body and then raise her back to life so that he and she can live together as immortal undead creatures. Which, in some ways, is kind of like Dracula, too. Sure. But it seems much creepier <laughs> than I'm going to bite you into on the neck and turn you into a vampire. Because he's actually planning to kind of sacrifice her on the altar. And her boyfriend and uh, Dr. Mueller rush her boyfriend, Frank Wemple. What a what a name. <laughs> Do you think they deliberately gave him a, a wimpy last name with Wemple? I don't know. They rush to try to save her. And they've been kind of clueless through a lot of this. They rush to try to save her at the end of the film after we've been given all this backstory. And... Imhotep basically looks at them, and they stop dead in their tracks. He raises his his hand. He's got the glowing ring, and he chants the Nebet, Nebet, which actually I stole that line from my Twilight Empire comic. If you read the Twilight Empire and Dragon magazine, you'll notice that, <laughs> that, that, that word Nebet is one of the magical words that is uttered by the, the evil witch queen in the Twilight Empire. Is it, basically, he, they come to save her, and they can't do it at all. Which I think is just kind of wonderful and unexpected, certainly in the 1930s when the men would show up and rescue the women. And she actually saves herself by reviving out of her Anxanaman personality enough to realize that she's alive and she wants to live her life and not rule from beyond the grave as an undead princess forever. And ends up praying to the the statue of Isis that's there in the tomb, who then actually saves her from Karloff in kind of a nicely unexpected and gruesome scene. You know, as a writer, part of me is like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) These guys all just ran around for the whole movie to have no effect at the end, which is generally not something you want to do as a writer. And yeah, we kind of got a literal deus ex machina at the end of this, because there's uh, the God in the machine, we have the animated statue that comes to life and destroys the scroll that's keeping Karloff's mummy alive. But on the other hand, in some sense, it's brought about by the, the agency of the female character who's imperiled. Exactly. In another way, I, I really like that. And it's it certainly surprised me when I first saw the film, and it kind of surprises me every time I see it, that it's like, you think the heroes are going to arrive, they're going to save the day, the girl's going to be rescued, and in fact, they arrive, he puts the whammy on them, they can't even touch him, which is just awesome. And she ends up praying to save herself and using the ancient gods against him. It's an unexpected twist, and it's a twist that I, I really enjoy. And like I say, as a writer, I don't know if I would ever have gone right to that same spot part of me is like well that's kind of out of left field and another part of me is like well that's kind of what it makes it really cool is that it's kind of out of left field and you don't see it coming i do like that i like that in this film there's 
role reversal. At the very beginning, when the one male assistant is the one who screams and freaks out, I mean, there weren't any yes. women there anyway, but still, you know, I liked that. And then at the end, she's the one that brings about the introduction of ISIS helping out and all that. I like right, this yeah. film on for those moments, specifically because it is so unexpected. It is so different, and it does stand out from a lot of the other horror movies and just movies in general of the era. I love right. it. Right, she brings about her own rescue. Exactly. Which is... You know, we've talked a lot about Dracula. It's a complete reversal from Dracula, where Dracula is just calling the girl around, and she's completely at his mercy, and the guys show up and, and kill him and rescue her. And you think, if especially if you remember the other movie, you're thinking that's where this movie's going, and then it takes that left turn. It also, the way it happens, also emphasizes just how creepy and powerful Karloff's character is, is in this. The other characters literally can't touch him. When I was watching again, the creep factor of this, there's a right before she snaps to it. He's talked about not wanting to be touched and people can't touch him. And that's kind of been an ongoing thing. And we know that's because he's undead and he's not really kind of as solid as we would want. But there's a point where he's going to sacrifice her and she's kind of going along with this. And he reaches out and he takes her arm. And when he puts his hand on her arm when to guide her or whatever he's doing. I don't remember exactly. When he takes the hand away, you can see his handprint on her arm and it's all like this mold and decay. It's just, it's like a shadow is left on her arm from the dust of this guy in his decay. And that actually is the thing that she sees that and realizes that he is not the person that she loved 3000 years ago that he's actually an undead creature and he's going to do the same to her. That's a really creepy moment in the film for me because it emphasizes this whole, don't touch me. I am undead. I am, you know, he never says I'm undead, but the fact that he's untouchable and people just can't do anything. He's a very powerful character, but he makes that what is kind of in some ways a simple mistake mm-hmm. is that he actually tries for that human contact with this person he's loved for 3,000 years. And she realizes that he is not the guy that she loves. Just the leaving of that handprint, when I saw it again last night, it was like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a callback. I mean, we see the handprint at the very beginning when he grabs the scroll and takes off. You see that on the desk. It's a callback to that, but it means so much more here. Right. And right. that, I think, has to do with the storytelling and the filmmaking, that it's yep. such an effective moment that doesn't come out of the blue because we see that that's what happens when he touches things. But it now is elevated to mean something totally different here and, and does kind of propel Helen to do what she needs to do. Right. It's really good. And that's, you know, part of the the reason that I think this film works so well is that there's a lot of little stuff like that that works with things that they've set up earlier and it's very compact and it's very self-contained as opposed to, again, it's not to pick on Dracula. Again, I love Dracula, but I realize that it's, it's a flawed film in Dracula. There are things that just never get explained, never get tied up. This film is contained within itself. It doesn't have those kind of errors. It, it doesn't make the, the kind of cinematography mistakes uh, that the other film makes. It's just a much more complete film and a much more well-realized film. But 
they learned from what they did in Dracula and what they did in Frankenstein. And at this point, they're cooking with gas. They're firing on all cylinders and any other cliche you care to throw <laughs> for people that uh, know what they're doing at this point. It's a good film. And I know we spoiled it, but listeners, if you haven't seen this, you've got Go see to see this movie. It is one of the classics. It's so if, phenomenal. You should see this just for the makeup, the makeup, the alone. production design, and the cinematography. You should see it for any one of those things should be enough for you to see it. Just seeing Karloff play this very, we haven't even really talked about his performance. Karloff barely moves in this film. He's always moving very slowly and stands very still and very erect. Because of that, that just magnifies your sense that this guy is dead. A stiff, he's rigor mortis, and he's decaying. And it's just, his performance is wonderful. The acting that he does with his eyes, the acting that he does with his voice. The scene at the beginning of the film, where one of, the only scene where you actually see him in the bandages, where he's in his coffin and he's got his arms crossed over his chest the way they often found mummies up when they mummified them. And his face is, his head is tilted back. And the scene where he comes to life, and he comes to life because one of the characters is sitting there kind of reading aloud, just very quietly to himself, trying to pick out the the meaning from the scroll of life and death. And And suddenly you see just, one of his eyes slowly slits open and it doesn't open all the way but you can see the light glinting off of the pupil in his eyes and then the Freud pans down and one of his hands very slowly the one with a ring on it slips down his body away from his chest that scene the acting in that scene the cinematography in that scene it's fabulous it's fabulous, and it's fabulous throughout the whole film. They did a great job. For me, that's probably one of the scariest, creepiest images from classic horror, that that whole bit. Yeah, absolutely. From Karloff's body acting and the way he had control over his body and in the way he filled that character with himself when he's walking around as Ardeth Bay. You're right, he's stiff as a board. But yep. there's still so much happening behind the eyes that you can't feel but unnerved by what's happening here. It's it's really good. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem quite human. It's really, really good, ladies and gentlemen. You mentioned the canoe cops versus the mummy a couple of times. Yes. We, we gotta talk about that real quick. Before we wrap up, we gotta let listeners know where they can read this story. There's uh, currently two ways that you can get involved with the canoe cops versus the mummy. One is that Christopher Mim reads a chapter every month on his Mimiverse monthly podcast. So you can hear him reading it there. It is based in his universe, the universe of the Canoe Cops and of the Mimiverse, as it's called, in which all of Christopher's films exist. The Canoe Cops versus the Mummy started life as a fake title on the marquee of the drive-in theater in The Giant Spider. There's a uh, Is It Cave Women on Mars? is the other title, which is an actual film. But then there's the second feature at the drive-in is Canoe Cops versus the Mummy. And I got tickled by that and decided it would be You got tickled. I think a lot of people got tickled by that. (laughs) It just seems very unlikely. It sounds awesome, though. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I, uh, Christopher at one point thought he was going to start a magazine, and um, I'm one of his writer friends. And I said, well, can I I write some Canoe Cops stories? And I wrote one, 
yeah, I had so much fun doing it that I thought, well, let me do another one. Let me try. Can I do Come New Cops versus the Mummy kind of Christopher? And he was like, yeah, absolutely, you can do it. So I wrote a short story that is The Mummy's Ring that he was then going to release, but the magazine didn't come about. Eventually, he started the podcast, and he said, can I read these stories you wrote for me? The Mummy's Ring was the second of these two stories I've written. And after I wrote it, I, I wanted to continue it. And I said to him, what would you think if I went back and I wrote the entire Canoe Cops versus the Mummy story around this? And so I started that a year and a half, two years ago now. It's, it's been a while. And he's doing it as a serialized story. And very recently, I've started running it as a serialized story on my webpage, sdsullivan.com. And also... If you want to encourage me to do such foolish things, and it's also part of my Patreon, which is CushingHorrors.com, which I think we've talked about before. And don't worry, fans, there will be an actual Cushing Horrors story coming soon, but right now it's uh, pointing directly to my Patreon. And I very recently finished writing the entire thing, so it's all done, and at some point, the not-too-distant future... It will actually come out in ebook and print form as well. And those of you that are listening to this will find a number of references to the mummy, the Karloff mummy, in that. For instance, one of the characters is named Ardath, which is Karloff's name. And there are other references as well, as well as real Egyptian style names for the mummy and the princess and the other people involved. And I'm also running it as a role-playing game occasionally. I just ran it at uh, Gary Con. Really? Yes. How'd it go? <laughs> it was fun. I ran it last year, too. And it's it's always fun to see how, when you start interacting with other people, how the story will twist and turn in ways that it doesn't in the way that you've actually written it as, as a novel. So I've had a, a – even though I've been writing it kind of a – one chunk at a time every month for Christopher, or usually I'd write two or three months at a time and then deliver them all. Uh, I had it all planned out from the beginning, so even before I'd finished the book, I was actually running it at at conventions, and I've run it uh, three times now? Three, maybe? And I may do it again. We'll see how it goes. But I'm also running a Manos game. (laughs) Right. Which has also been wildly popular. Anyway, so that's what Canoe Cops versus the Mummy is going on right now. You can go to uh, my Patreon, CushingHorrors.com, throw a buck at me, and, and it'll come to your email box every month, or throw two bucks at me, and you actually get to be ahead of the game. And sometimes I'll release more than one chapter a month, uh, depending upon whether we hit certain certain goals. I think I'm looking for three more, two or three more people to join my Patreon, and I'll throw up another bonus chapter. You got Monster Kid Radio's seal of approval. Awesome. I will I will take that, and if you actually have a seal of approval, maybe I'll uh, put it on the cover of the book when it comes well, out. Well, now I have to make one, don't I? <laughs> well, yeah, you might you might have to do that. <laughs> oh. Anyway, yeah, so that's what I'm doing with the Canoe Cops versus the Mummy. That is my current mummy thing, though. Cushing Horrors, which is the official title of that, is Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, and I hope to be writing that within the next month or so or start writing it, and then hopefully running it as a serial as well, that will have a mummy or mummies in it at some point in the future. So I love mummies, uh, and I've been you know doing mummy stuff for a long time. Back when I was working on Chill, 
we did a chill game called Creature Feature, which was a subset of the main game, in which you got to play the monsters, and one of the monsters was a mummy, and the mummy was the monster that I I remember using in the playtest, or at least some of the playtests. So I love mummies. Mummies are really cool. There aren't enough cool mummy stories nowadays, even though there have been more recent mummy movies. Yeah, I agree. That I've seen. Steve, thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. I know it was kind of a last-minute thing to schedule, so thank you. I really enjoy having you on the show. And we talked about something non-Kaiju-related, and I had just as much fun. Oh, yeah, and I I did too. And, you know, we talked earlier in the program about how you and I were, last night, we're batting around things we might talk about. And I can't believe it, since I'm writing a mummy story, I can't believe it took us that long to get to, hey, have you done Karloff's The Mummy? And you're going... No, my God, no! <laughs> it took us like what half an hour to get there. I know, right? Like, what are we? Uh, what? <laughs> what were we thinking? Yeah. What were we not thinking? Anyway, it's it's been great. Fans can write to me and and contact me through my websites, and I hope to hear from all of you soon. Excellent, thank you, Steve. You know, left unchecked. Whenever I have Steve on the show, it can turn into a huge conversation because we just go all over the place, and I. Love it. Steve is a dear friend. He's kind of a mentor to me when it comes to writing. Don't tell him I said that. I don't want him to get a big head or anything. And, you know, he's just a great guy. I love chatting about these classic monster movies with other monster kids, and Steve brings his own point of view. So, Steve, thank you for being part of the show. And listeners, sdsullivan.com or Cushing, as in Peter Cushing, horrors.com is where you want to go to keep up to date with and even support one heck of a monster kid. Steve, Thanks again. And yeah, listeners, we've got him lined up already to be on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio, so stay tuned for that. Come and see how the vampires do it. House of Dark Shadows, where death is a way of life. Julia, do you believe in the existence of vampires? He's not really serious. But he is, Julia. Barnabas Collins, vampire, takes a bride in a bizarre act of unnatural love. House of Dark Shadows. Rated GP. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive-Thru Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. So last weekend at the Northwest Film Center here in Portland, Oregon, I went to go see a couple of movies. Now, I didn't know this was happening. Actually, I have to say thank you to Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland for bringing this to my attention. He posted it on his website. Click the links button over on our website and you'll find a link to that. And I found out that the movies White Zombie and The Crime of Dr. Crespi 
was going to be shown here in Portland. It was just a one night thing and I had a blast. Now I've been to the Northwest Film Center a few times. Before this most recent trip, I saw I walked with a zombie there. In the past, I've also seen movies like The Black Cat there. And I gotta tell you, seeing these classic monster movies on the big screen projected film on that big screen is pretty darn cool. No, the Northwest Film Center is not an actual movie theater. So you don't get the popcorn, you don't get the soda, and you don't really have the most comfortable chairs. It's actually more set up for lectures and seminars and that sort of thing. But because of that, it's a slightly different crowd when you go to see a movie here. You don't have the guys in the back who got loaded before they came in to come see a movie. You don't have the guys and gals who are giggling with their cell phones, chatting, texting, calling, playing Angry Bird. People still play Angry Birds, doing whatever it is they do on cell phones in the middle of a movie. It's pretty cool. It was really nice. A nice, respectful crowd. Sure, there were a few giggles here and there with White Zombie, and especially with the crime of Dr. Crespi, but they made sense. There was never anybody ever laughing at the film itself. It was just people enjoying it, getting into the story, and kind of laughing at some of the absurdity of the things that are happening, especially in the crime of Dr. Crespi, which is a really cool movie. Now, I'd seen White Zombie over and over and over again. I love White Zombie. The Crime of Dr. Crespi is one that has been mentioned to me a couple of times. Nicholas Hatcher, I believe, is somebody who's mentioned it to me before, and man, I really need to get him back on the show. Michael Legge, a.k.a. the horror host Dr. Dreck, has also mentioned it to me before. It's really cool. It stars Eric Von Stroheim. Eric Von Stroheim in a genre film. All right. The guy walks around like a German soldier, and, you know, I giggled every time he walked in the scene because he's got his arm kicking back and forth. He's wearing his white doctor's uniform as if it's a military suit. I mean, he just looks so proper, so cool. And Dwight Fry, in an understated performance in this film, you know, when you think about 1930s Dwight Fry, you think about Fritz, you think about Renfield. Well, now I'm going to think about Dr. Thomas. That's the character he plays in The Crime of Dr. Crespi. So understated, so cool. Just need to see what he can do when he's given something non-monstrous to perform. This film is based on an Edgar Allan Poe story, and I had to giggle a little bit in the opening credits because they spelled Allen wrong. Uh, it was A-L-L-E-N. It's actually A-L-L-E-N. The Poe story it was based on was Premature Burial. So as soon as that title card went up, I was like, oh, okay, I know I'm in for something good. You know, listeners, if you have an opportunity to see this thing, I highly recommend it. And I really would recommend, if you have any art museums, any art houses, anything like that in your area, pay attention to what they're showing. Because every once in a while, you might get an opportunity to see a classic horror movie on the big screen. These two films were brought in as part of the UCLA preservation program of some such or something. I, I don't really know. I wasn't allowed to have my Kindle or my phone on, so I couldn't take notes while it was flashing up on the screen. But it was just really a neat experience. So if you have anything like this in your local area, check them out, see if they're showing monster movies. And if you have a way to get a hold of them and make some suggestions, especially these monster movies from the thirties and sometimes from the forties, they're more than just monster movies. They're important historical films. Steve and I were talking about this when we were talking about the mummy, about classic Hollywood. And these movies are so indicative of their time. And there's so much craft and so much art Mm. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, and I'm about to start getting tongue-tied, so, um, yeah, we'll move on. 
I want to thank everybody for getting to this point in the show. I know it's a longer episode than normal, so thank you for sticking around and being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience. I mentioned our website so many times at the beginning of the show. I'm going to mention it again. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Here you're going to find links to every single thing we talk about here in the show. Everything that we've mentioned in this episode you're going to find there as well as everything we've ever mentioned in any of the previous 260 plus episodes of the podcast. You're going to find it here. You're going to find links to every single episode. If you want to go back and listen to something from the past, well, feel free. Anyway, you're also going to find our contact information. I mentioned that at the top. I'll mention it again. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5657, 503-4795-MKR. I do have another email and another Facebook message that's come in. I'm going to sit on those until next week. So those will be coming in. If you have anything that you want to comment on about this episode or any of the previous episodes, well, you know how to get it to us. We have a Facebook group, we have a Facebook page, and yeah, there's a button to that now on the website too, and a link to every single song that's appeared here on the show in the past. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, we're going to be talking about a movie from the 1950s. We're going to be talking about The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. And this is where I would normally be playing the trailer from The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues, but I cannot find the trailer online anywhere without the Trailers from Hell commentary on top of it. I love Trailers from Hell. I think what Joe Dante and company do is amazing. However, I would like to just have the trailer by itself so that I could play it here on the show. So if anybody's got any leads on the Phantom from 10,000 Leagues trailer, please let me know. We're going to be talking about that movie with comic book artist Tad Galusha. You can find out more about him at tadgalusha.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Tad has appeared on the show once before, when I went to Rose City Comic Con and talked to a handful of people there, he was somebody who was selling some of his artwork. I have a really cool creature from the Black Lagoon art print from him, and I'm excited to get him on the show for a proper discussion about this, well, let's be honest, not-so-classic monster movie. So that's going to be a lot of fun in seven days here on Monster Kid Radio. Oh, and uh, one more thing to revisit the Rondo Awards, rondoaward.com. Go check out the ballot. You don't have to vote in every single category, but if you do see a category that you like, or at least nominees that you like in those various categories, throw a little support their way. Let those writers, artists, editors, interviewers, podcasters, movie makers, just let them all know how much you appreciate their work. So let's be honest, folks. This is a niche thing. This category of film, the classic monster movies, the being a monster kid, it's pretty niche. So I feel like you really want to support your fellow monster kids and just let them know how much you appreciate the work that they do. Like podcaster Vince Rotolo, who I'm really pushing to see inducted into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame as part of the Rondo Awards this year. The ballot deadline is April 10th, so we got maybe like a week and a half left to get your ballot in. Okay, now we're done. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Sand Dune. That belongs to the Sturgeons at T-H-E-E, Sturgeons.bandcamp.com. The song is on their album Freshwater Freakout. It just came out in February of this year. I've listened to it repeatedly. Five songs, all a lot of fun. Check them out and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week. (laughs) 